Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so we're going we're gonna to dive in here to Hebrews, the end of chapter 4 here, verses 12 through 16. And the Lord really titled the message, The Counselor because that's who Jesus is. And it's probably the most underused title of Jesus in the whole Bible, honestly. And it it comes out of Isaiah, and we're going to look at that at the end of this message. But he is the counselor, and it's only used as him for him in one spot in the entire Bible. That's kind of why it's overlooked so much. But as we dive into Hebrews chapter 4, before we start, this is the first day of what we call the Passion Week, right? As Christians that celebrate the arrival of Jesus, culminating with what we in the church call Resurrection Sunday next Sunday. And so what I wanted to do before we, to start off the Passion Week, which really started yesterday, technically, but here's the week laid out of what Jesus endured for us, starting, starting on a Saturday. So the 10th of Nisan The lamb is inspected on the donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, Daniel 9, Psalms 118.25-26. So if you remember, it's a Saturday that Jesus rides in on the donkey. And so he's riding in to the day prescribed by Daniel 9 in the 70 weeks of Daniel and fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 while the people sing and fulfill Psalms 118.25-26. Then the next day, the fig tree was cursed, which is a Sunday. The conspirators counseled on Monday. There's the Last Supper on Tuesday. The crucifixion on the 14th of Nisan is the fulfillment of the Passover for us. So the Passover was on, remember, it's linked to a day, just like Christmas is linked to a day on our calendar. The Passover is linked to a day. It was on the 14th of Nisan for the Israelites in, in the Exodus event. So there's the crucifixion, the Passover, the lamb on that Wednesday, fulfilling the Passover to the day, then the feast of unleavened bread, then the woman prepare the spices, etc. And then the 17th of Nisan is the resurrection, that Saturday. So that's how the week is laid out. And that 17th day of the seventh month of Nisan fulfills, even the end of it fulfills Genesis 8:4, when Noah stepped out of the ark. So in Genesis 8, 4, and the ark rested on the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. So Noah walked out of the ark on the anniversary in advance of Jesus walking out of that tomb. And so the, even the whole, the whole week is predictive and prophetic, but even the last day has a link all the way back to Genesis because Noah had a new beginning, right? It was a new earth, new world, renewed hope. Same with us. It's a new beginning with Jesus. When he walked out of that tomb in that grave, it's a new beginning for us. So here's the, some of the verses that were fulfilled. Zechariah 9.9, 9, on, on the day we're celebrating today, which happened on a Saturday. Zechariah 9.9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. 
He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the full of an ass. So there's Jesus riding in on the donkey. The people are singing Psalms 118, 25 through 26. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee. Send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And all of it's happening exactly on time according to Daniel 9. So if you go to the next slide, Austin. So from Daniel 9, this day that's being fulfilled to the day, Jesus is riding in on the donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 is fulfilled. He's on the donkey. They're singing Psalms 118, fulfilling Psalms 118 to the day. Now, this is why Jesus pronounces the blindness, the partial blindness on Israel, because they didn't recognize that he was there as king as prescribed to the day that he was to show up. And so how were they supposed to know? And we're going to go into this in, in a lot more detail next week for, for the resurrection celebration next week. But the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus on March 14th of 445 BC. Now, that's important because that's the trigger point to the start of the 70 weeks of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9. So when you look at Daniel chapter 9, there's 69 groups of seven-year periods. And the Bible always uses 360 days per year. And so that's on God's calendar. That didn't change. When you get to Revelation, he still uses 360 days per year. So when you look at Daniel's 69 weeks, if you take 69 times 7 times 360, it's 173,880 days. And when you read that prophecy, and we'll go through it in detail next week to celebrate, but when you read that prophecy, it describes exactly what would happen up until the 69th week is fulfilled. And then after that, the Messiah would be crushed or crucified for our, on our behalf, and he was. And then it gets into some other details, and then it talks about the final seven-year period that Daniel, that the prophet Daniel got from the Holy Spirit. That final seven-year period is the seven-year tribulation. That's the 70th week of Daniel. So these 70 weeks, 69 were fulfilled to Jesus riding into the day on the donkey, and then the seventh the seventh last one, the 70th week, is fulfilled in the seven-year tribulation all the way after the church is raptured. So when you look at that math, though, the decree of Artaxerxes, so Daniel's prophecy says from the decree to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, well, that happens in Nehemiah chapter 2, and that's that decree, and it's on a date, March 14th of 445 B.C. You fast forward the 173,880 days, and you get to where the lamb was inspected. If you remember in the Passover, the 10th of Nisan, which is the Saturday that Jesus rode in, the lamb was to be inspected to see if it had a blemish or not. And so Jesus rides in on the donkey. He's inspected to be completely without blemish. Remember that whole time they're sitting there saying, we can't find fault with this man. The witnesses couldn't agree. Pilate didn't want anything to do with him. There was nothing to blame. He was without blemish. And so that's what happens on April the 6th of 32 AD. Now, and there's the math, 445 to 32, you get 173,740 days. You adjust for the calendar difference from March 14th to April 6th of 24 days, and then you account for all the leap years in between, and you get 173,880 to the, to the day. And so God is absolutely precise in his word in the prophecy of what we are celebrating today as a church was fulfilled to the day by our king.
which is just amazing. So there's some background on, on what we call, when you hear the word Palm Sunday, that's where it all comes from. It's from Jesus riding on, on the donkey and then laying the palms down, the leaves, the branches, as he's riding over it, and they're singing Hosanna. So getting into Hebrews for the day. We are, we're closing out chapter 4, so we're at the very end of kind of that top part of the outline of a priest better than Aaron. And Jesus is our high priest, and what does that mean for us today? How do you operate in Jesus being your high priest? What does that even look like? And so we're going to talk about that kind of at the end of the message. But like I said, the way I titled the, the message is The Counselor. Because when you really look at his role as a high priest, it coincides directly with him as our counselor. And, that's, and that linkage together is so critical to get. And so these five warnings that the whole book of Hebrews is built around as we continue this, the second warning, the danger of hardening the heart, this is what we're, we're past that second warning now and closing the chapter. And so then later on, we'll start to pick up the failing to mature the danger of willful sin, the danger of refusing. Now, remember, the entire book of Hebrews is written to us as believers. There's nothing in it about how to get saved, spreading the gospel. It's all about who is Jesus on your behalf once you're saved and why you should cling to him with everything you have and not let go. And so each warning, the reason why the Holy Spirit structured the whole book like this is so that each warning it builds off of one another, and it's a progression, and it ultimately culminates with apostasy. So as you start to drift, your heart starts to harden, then you fail to mature in your walk with the Lord, then you start to commit willful sin, and then you refuse the Lord altogether. And when you think about it, it's, it, it's kind of the process, now Pharaoh wasn't saved, but the hardening of the heart is the same process Pharaoh went, to, went through of God telling him something and him denying it constantly. So that's why the, the whole book is for us as believers and how to walk, how to walk with Jesus. It's one thing to know him and to get saved. It's quite another to walk with him. And what does that look like? So that's that's what this is all about today. Because God is longing for a deep relationship with us as his people, he's laid out these warnings for us. And so the the whole plea out of the book of Hebrews is. Do not let your grip on Jesus start to slip. You've got to stay steadfast. You've got to cling to him or you will start to drift away. And then things just start to slowly unravel. It's not a, it's amazing. Anytime you watch or I'm sure all of you in here have had a friend at some point that has strayed from the faith or walked away from the faith or questioned their relationship with God, right? And you watch that process. It's not something that happens just they wake up one Saturday and go, hey, I don't know about this Jesus thing. It is a slow progression. The enemy is playing the long game. It, it, it take, sometimes will take years, and it's something that's said. Or they're, they're at the wrong church for a lot of years, and they're taught the wrong thing. And so they start to embed that in who they are. And it, it, it takes a long time. It's a process. And so just keep that in mind. This is the enemy is cunning and conniving and, and swift. And he's the most admirable adversary you can ever face is Satan. So do not take for granted what all of us in this room are up against in your daily walk. You are in a war. 
a war where the enemy wants to kill you and Jesus wants to kill him. So let's get on the side of the victor (laughs) who's going to win this in the end. Because what's at stake, it's not your salvation. Remember, don't ever forget that in Hebrews. What's at stake is not your salvation. Once you're in Jesus, you are there forever. But that doesn't mean that the enemy can't make you unproductive for the kingdom. And that's what Hebrews is all about. So the kingdom, remember, this is the central theme throughout the entire Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, I know I harp on this a lot, but it's important to get this concept down. Then come at the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. This is at the end of the millennium. Remember, during the millennium, when we studied this in Revelation, there's death. Uh, people, if you die before the age of 100, you die as a young child, not as an old man. And we looked at that, a lot of detail in that. So putting death to rest is at the end of the millennium. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he shall put all things under his feet. But when he, hath, when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so Jesus is going to work for a thousand years in the millennium to deliver this kingdom up to God. And again, I cannot stress this enough, Revelation 3.11, what Jesus is pleading with us. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. It's, he is, Jesus is telling you, you've got something laid up and stored up for you that you don't have possession of yet in the physical, but you have it spiritually. And so you have, if you've done things for the kingdom, if you've worked for the Lord, you have a crown laid up for you that can be lost. You can stray away and lose that. And Jesus is pleading with us, hold fast, stay with me, Walk with me. Okay, the closing of chapter 4 gives us one of the most important principles in walking with the Lord. That the Lord is sufficiency of everything you need to be successful in your walk. Jesus is all of it. You don't need anyone else to pick you up where you are but Jesus. Now, is it nice to have? Yes. Is it edifying to one another? Absolutely. Should we be in the trenches with each other? Yes. Are we to exhort one another? Yes. But he can do it all. And he is the word of God. Look at how these, six, these five verses we're going through today. Chat, verse 12. He is the word. Jesus is the word. He alone sees everything in your life in verse 13. There is nothing in your life that Jesus does not know about. And that's what verse 13 hits on. He is the one whom we alone have an appointment of reckoning in verse 13. He's our high priest in verse 14. He suffered and endured everything that you can encounter in your life in verse 15. Anything you're going through, Jesus dealt with it and went through it. There's nothing in your life that the enemy is going to throw at you that Jesus did not endure and conquer in verse 15. He's the only one sitting on the throne of grace and mercy and is offering it to us in verse 16 to close these set of passages. And for all of these things and so much more, that's why I love to call him the counselor. He is the counselor. 
you know, you go to people that are in something, they like to go to a counselor that has wisdom, that can help them through something, maybe someone that's related to what they're going through, right? That they've experienced something similar. And you hear that phrase a lot in Christians in their walk that, well, I really relate to, and then you fill in the blank, to so-and-so or so-and-so. The reason that they relate to them is because they find similarities, right? Well, I was, I was a child that uh, my dad left at a very early age, and so if I find someone else in the room that experienced that, I relate to them. You know, it's that kind of thing. And what I want all of us to understand is on a higher plane, Jesus can relate to anything you're in. No matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're experiencing now, he can be your counselor. And if you can understand that, your, your walk will radically open up. It will, the doors will just break off. So in verse 12, to start the passages today, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So look at this to start out. For the word of God. What is the word of God? Who is the word of God? We obviously know it's Jesus from John 1, but look at these characteristics of, the, of God's word. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So God's word never returns void. Okay, there's a, a key point for you. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rocks in pieces? I don't know if any of you have ever watched builders or stonemasons or people and they have the chisels and they're breaking stone. Stone is hard. It's hard. You can't just hit it with your hand and break it apart. You need the right tool, and you need the right tool on a stony heart as well, where God's word is that tool to chisel down and to break it open and just split it apart and get rid of it so he can shape it into something that's usable. In Psalms 149, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all the saints. Praise ye the Lord. So let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. If you don't know the word of God, because we know from verse 12 here that the word of God is a two-edged sword. And so from that verse in Psalms, God wants you to use that sword in your weapon of warfare. Okay, and you can't use it if you don't have training. And you can't train if you're not in it. Right? Nobody just walks into a, a jujitsu gym and, and is the master, right, from day one. You're you're gonna get rolled up and beat down pretty easily. You've got to go through training, right? Same with sports. There's nothing more. You could be a great baseball player and have great hand-eye coordination, hit a, a white ball flying at you at 104 miles an hour, and you take one that's a little smaller and set it at your feet and pick up a golf club, and you can't even make it go 50 yards, you know, because it's a different skill set. You can't just get out there and force it. Same thing with studying the Word of God. You've got to be in it so that you can use it as a two-edged sword in your battle. 
and in this war that you're in. Look at Isaiah 49.2. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Ephesians 6. Remember the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6.17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So you have the sword. Again, it's the word of God. And it's your only offensive weapon in the armor that Ephesians 6 lists. And then the seventh item, one of the most important ones, is the heavy artillery. It's the prayer. It's after that. So the prayer. So you use the sword in your warfare, and then you go to prayer with it, with that sword and with the word of God. In Revelation 1.16, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, if you weren't here for the, the study through Revelation there's a, it's the only book of the Bible that gives you an outline of itself. It's the most important book of the entire Bible, which is why we went through it first as a church. But Revelation 1 is the glory of Jesus, the resurrected, ruling Jesus. So it's in chapter 1, I think it's around verse 19, God writes down this outline. Write the things which you saw, the things which are, and the things which will be hereafter, or metatata, after the church age closes. And chapter 1 is the glory of the risen Christ ruling and reigning. And, and if you look at chapter 1, it has 24 characteristics of Jesus, which align with the 24 elders in chapters 4 and 5. And it's a piece of Jesus representing the church. But in chapter 1, verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And then when you get to chapter 2... So in that same outline, write the things which are, it's chapters 2 and 3, which are the seven letters to the seven churches. In verse 16 of chapter 2, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, that's how Jesus does war. He just uses his word, which is why when the armies are surrounding Jerusalem, and Jesus, and we come with him in Revelation 19, and he stands on Mount Megiddo for Armageddon. It's just in Hebrew, it's Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. That's where they get that word, Armageddon. In Zechariah 4 and 14, he just uses his word, and everyone that's around Jerusalem that's against him just is gone. And so it's the word of his mouth. Revelation 19, go to the end of the book. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So that sword, this is Jesus, if you remember from Revelation 19. So you go back a few verses, and again, it's my favorite Literally, I think it's maybe my favorite set of passages in the entire Bible, is when the space-time continuum will rip in half at the word of Jesus, and we are with him, and we ride down with him on our white horses with him leading the charge. And it's going to be, it's going to be unbelievable. It just, I can't, I, I don't even have words to describe it. It's just going to be incredible. But this is in Revelation 19. This is where all this happens in verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness 
he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he held, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called, there it is, the Word of God, just like from Hebrews 4.12. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's us. If you're saved, you get to be at this point with Jesus as an army in heaven on a white horse following the King of Kings to come down and to put everything back together again. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fiercest of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who our Jesus is. He is he came and died once. And it started yesterday, as we celebrate on that Saturday, the palm of him riding in on the donkey. And it, he was triumphant by exiting the grave, which we're going to celebrate next Sunday here at church. But he's not there anymore. And he's waiting for us to come to bring us home, and we're going to come back with him. And he's got a lot of work to do in the meantime. But we serve a triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you, as, a, as one that's created in his image, are a triune creation. Okay, You have three parts to who you are. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And the soul is your mind, will, and emotions. That's, and you hear that a lot. That's what psychology, psychology tries to deal with, your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay, But you are triune because you're created in an image of God. And since you have a piece of God in you, your spirit... You're immortal whether you like it or not. And that's, that's part of the problem with people that, that are not saved. They know that they are accountable to something, but they don't know what they're accountable to and why. And, and the whole thing why they flee Jesus is they're fleeing accountability at the end of the day. When you really peel back everything, that, every excuse they'll give you, the bottom line is they are fleeing accountability for being a fallen person that needs a savior. But you're a triune being, and so you have the spirit of God in you, and God cannot be destroyed, and so thus you can't be destroyed. So you're eternal, whether you like it or not, and the question is, where will you spend it? That's what it comes down to. Do you spend it with him, or do you spend it forever separated from him because you didn't appropriate to your life what Jesus did here in about four days, right, on the cross, celebrating the Passover. So God's word, look at this. God's word's the only thing that can separate and divide your soul and your spirit. Look at verse 12 again. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And I cannot tell you for how many years growing up in the church, I thought those were synonymous, the same thing. Well, you need to get your soul saved. No, you need to get your spirit saved. <laughs> your spirit needs to get born again. Thus, then you can control your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. But God's word is the only thing that can separate and divide those two items. So your mind, will, and emotions, and your spirit. So without using the word of God, you cannot rightfully place your spirit over your soul. See, before you're born again, 
Everything is driven through your emotions. Okay, you act out of anger, you act out of greed, you act out of lust or fear. Fear is a, a major driver for people that gets them to act, to do something. When you're, before you're saved, you're doing everything out of your emotions. And once you get saved and you're born again, you need, then need to use the word of God to divide your soul and your spirit so your spirit is rightfully put as head of that triune creation that you are. Then your spirit is driving all of your emotions. You don't act out of fear. You don't act out of anger. You don't act out of lust or greed or joy or anything. You fill in the blank, all those emotions. You're not driven by them. You have control of them. And you know what's driving you. And and it's of a sound mind, a renewing of your mind, and you're being driven by the spirit of the living God who will not lead you astray. And so that's why, that's why this is so critical because the word drives the division to restore what was always intended by God. God never intended for it to be the other way, but we fell and here we are. So who is the word? How do you do this? How do you use the word to divide your soul and spirit? Well, Jesus is the word from John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. See, because Jesus is the word, and because he's the light of the world, anything you have in your life, when you bring it to the light, to Jesus, it can't stay in the darkness because he's going to shine a light on it and bring attention to it and take care of it. So if you're using the word of God and you're bringing this to him, using the word, using Jesus himself, then you can have victory, right, in your life, in anything you're facing. And you can let the spirit guide you. In John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that word and dwelt among us in the Greek, remember, it means tabernacled. So Jesus tabernacled amongst us. It's why when you go and study the tabernacle, everything about it speaks of Jesus Christ. He, cl- he lays claim to every article, article and item inside the tabernacle. He is the light of the world. He's the bread of life. Remember the table of showbread? He's the, he's the propitiation for our sin. You needed that to even get inside of it. There's one door into it. He said, I am the door. That whole thing that, that God showed Moses, every bit of it, the dimensions, the way it used the ram skins, the sheep skins, the porpoise skins, its structure, the colors in it, the, everything inside of it, the holy of holies, the veil, the mercy seat, all of it, all of it speaks of Jesus, every bit of it. And he lays claim to all of it in the New Testament when he shows up in the flesh. That's why that verse is so important in verse 14. And he tabernacled amongst us. So he's the word. The word of God, it's the solution to any psychological problem. And I don't know if you've noticed, but most people that go to psychologists and psychiatrists, don't. it's a very small percentage of them that get healed, honestly. They get truly healed. 
I mean, they'll get medicine, they'll suppress things, they'll subdue, you know, whatever they've got going on. But not many of them walk out chains free because they're not using the word of God. And once you can do that, it is the cure for any, anything you are facing in your mind. It is the weapon of warfare for your mind, of whatever you're facing. In Romans 12, 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm sure all of you have heard that verse. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, how do you renew your mind? Well, the renewing of your mind. You use the word of God to renew your mind. Then you may prove what is God's will, his direction, how to move, how to behave, how to respond, how to be patient, how to be loving, how to be more giving, how to be all the things that all of us want to be in Jesus, right? He's the, he's the culmination of all of them, every gift of the Spirit, prophecy, healing, giving, loving, teaching, exhorting, all of those. He met and is the fulfillment of all of them. And so when you're using the Word of God, you grow in those areas. All of a sudden, you're studying the Bible a year, a year or two or three or four or however long, and when your kid does something wrong, it doesn't make you angry. You know, you have patience for it. You want to teach them and correct them. You get down on their level. You look them in the eye. You pour into them because it's what Jesus does with you, right? All of us. I mean, none of us just get saved and all of a sudden we're, oh, here we are. You know, we arrived. It doesn't work that way. It's you're born again and then you will start the greatest journey of your entire life, which is to get to know the one that breathed the universe into existence, who is love from 1 John 5. God is love. So take it to him because he is the word of God. That's who Jesus is. So the word in verse 12 here, quick, in the Greek, it literally means living, breathing, or endless in the kingdom of God. So endless in the kingdom. The word powerful in the Greek is, it literally means active. So think of it, Jesus as the word is living, breathing, active, and endless in the kingdom. That's a cool definition of the word of God. It's only used two other times in the New Testament, and both instances are translated as effectual. In Philemon 1.6, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So it's effectual. God's word is effectual. This verse then goes on to the joints and marrow. So look at the, the end of verse 12 here. And of the joints and marrow, it's in the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. It's almost like the word of God is surgical in some degree. Because when you have something in your life that needs to be removed, it's almost like the word just, it just cuts it out perfectly. And it just, he just grabs it and pulls it off of you. It's not like, well, I've got uh, something wrong with my wrist, we'll sever at my shoulder. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not a, it's not a mallet, you know, it's not a hammer. The word of God is a surgical tool to properly put you in order for what you need. And so in verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now this verse, if you want a good memory verse, 
Chapter 4, verse 13 is a fantastic memory verse because you're not hiding anything in fooling Jesus. You're not. As much as a lot of us would like to think whatever's in our closet, we can keep the door shut and just tidy up the rest of the house, and it'll be fine, right? We'll have everybody over for dinner. Nobody will know. Jesus knows, and I know that's a sombering thought, but it's, a, it's something that we all have to realize, that if you've, you're holding on to something, he knows about it, because all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So that word, the word to do at the very end of this verse in the Greek is the word logos. Now, when I was studying this week, I had never, rec- I had never realized that, but that was really interesting to me because logos is another word, is the same word used in John 1.1 for in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos. And if you use Bible helps or tools at all, logos Bible is a tool that you can buy. It's a software. That's where they get that that phrase. The word logos means account, regard, consideration, reckoning, score, answer, explanation, and reference to judgment with whom as judge we stand in relation. Now that's a pretty, that's a heavy definition. Look at Matthew 12, verse 36. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. So, you can hold on to it now or and bring it to Jesus now, or you can hold on to it and let Jesus bring it up to you, you know, later. That's, just think about that. It's kind of like when, if you have children and you've caught them in something and they don't want to admit it, and, and you keep trying to give them an opportunity to admit it, and they won't admit it, and finally just bring out, look, hey, I saw the text message, you know, or whatever, whatever the proof, the proof text is. And then, and then they're like, oh, okay. I need, to, I need to repent and bring this to my parents more often. So Romans 14, 11, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So you have an account to give. And what I want you to get from this is you don't have to give account if you give it now. Because you give it now, Jesus will take care of it now. Okay, you, he will wipe that from you. He'll take that off of you and go to the counselor right now. You can take it to him now or you can bring, be forced to bring it later. In verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So Jesus is our high priest. He's better than Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest for all of Israel. And his priesthood, Jesus' priesthood, is an everlasting priesthood that will never be destroyed. His priesthood will be forever. He, as our high priest, takes care of everything on our behalf before the Father. So remember the role of the high priest. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and take something to the mercy seat. Remember, and if you weren't fit for it, you died. You were killed immediately. And that's why the high priest would wear those in their clothing. They would put the belt of bells on them. That way, so if they, if they stopped ringing or if they heard a, a, the bell ring and then it stopped and they could kind of pull the cord and see if someone's still alive. And if they, if they were dead, they would just drag them out with that cord because nobody could go in to get them. 
That's how, that's how holy it was to be in the presence of God. So just think about that. You have a high priest that anything you have going on in your life, he is going into the Holy of Holies on your behalf. And he's taking it to the mercy seat. So he's taking care of everything on our behalf. So hold fast to your profession that he is king. Hold fast. Because he's our high priest at the end of verse 14, let us hold fast. You need to not lose sight of what drew you to Jesus to begin with. Right? A lot of people get get into a relationship with him and then they've lost their first love. They forget. Why did I run to Jesus to begin with? And that's what happened in the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have something against thee because thou hast lost or left thy first love. So continuing in verse 14, that hold with this whole concept of holding fast to Jesus. Look at Job 27. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. 2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast the form of sound words. Okay, you, don't, you won't know sound words if you're not in the word of God. You've got to get those words. Which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is Christ Jesus. In Revelation 2.25, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. Jesus is telling you, hold. It's kind of like one of my favorite scenes in a movie of all time is that scene in Gladiator when, they're, when uh, Maximus is first in the arena. Remember, and he's trying to organize these slaves and they've never fought war before and he's trying to get them organized and he, and he just starts yelling, hold. You know what I'm talking about. You know the scene. But that's kind of how I feel like on this walk with Jesus. Like all of us need to be looking at each other just saying, hold. You know, just screaming hold from now on. If you guys see me sometime, just scream that. It'll just make me laugh really hard. But hold fast till I come because he is coming back and he's going to call us home. And you've got something to hold on to until then. And praise God, it's not something of the world that is tossed to and fro all over the place, that it is a rock of the one that created it to begin with. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 3 from Revelation here. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and there it is again, hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now that closes the verse. What's in parentheses there and in your notes is what, I, is what I wrote, just as a thought. What I love about this passage in chapter 3, verse 3, if you are not watching, you won't know what hour he's coming to take you home. Did you pick that up? Look at that. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, which must mean the opposite is true. If you are watching, you, he won't come on you as a thief because you'll recognize prophetically throughout the entire counsel of God's word all, all the signs that are lining up in the end times. Wow, Israel's back in the land. Wow, for the first time in the history of man, they want you to take something that, makes, that allows you to buy, sell, or trade. For the first time in the world, most of the world is moving to a digital currency where they can shut you off at an instant. If you don't go with the system, you don't get gas or food. It's that simple. 
that you can see the stage setting going on all around us. Uh, Russia making statements about certain parts of Israel that don't belong to Israel. Okay, that, that's a total setup for Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is the war of Gog and Magog. So if you're in the word of God and you're seeing all of this stage setting, you should start to realize we are getting really close to the end. When you really, it's not just one thing. You know, I remember back in the, in the 80s as a kid, I loved studying prophecy. And I just remember looking at the world and, and everything going on and just trying to figure out, okay, what, is, what does God's word say and how is that lining up with the world? And it's like, well, there, might be one, there may have been like one or two things, you know, 30 plus years ago. And now there are, you can't keep up. There's so many. You can't even keep up with the headlines. There's so much moving toward what Jesus described. So in verse 15 here, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted in all points. So thus there's nothing the enemy can throw at you that he did not endure already. So think about that. You know, you think, you think you're going through something and it's tough and you can't relate to someone else because they're not experiencing the same thing or they've never gone through it. Jesus did. And that's all you need to know. And so go and sit on it with him. Let him be the one to counsel you through it because he was tempted in everything. And look at this. Only he who fully resisted temptation can know the extent of its force. I want you to think about that. That's a, that's a crazy quote. I remember hearing that quote a long time ago. Only he who fully resisted temptation can know the extent of its force. Okay, all of us, Romans 8, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you don't really know the full extent of the force of the enemy because you didn't withstand it. You fell. And so because he did, he was tempted in everything and withstood it, he is our high priest, and he alone is worthy. And praise God is right. Absolutely. Since he endured and overcame all temptation, then give whatever you're facing to him so he can come and help you overcome that temptation. See, he knows what it takes, and so let him show you what it takes to do it. And lay it all down at the feet of Jesus, the word of God. In verse 16, here, let us therefore, okay, because of all of this, because he's the word of God, because he divides asunder the soul and the spirit, because he sees everything, because he's our high priest, and because he was tempted in all things, therefore, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in help, to help in time of need. So because of all those things, you have access to the throne room. And go boldly into it. There is nothing you can bring into that room that Jesus doesn't care about. I'm telling you, there is no problem too small. There's no problem too big. There's nothing that's insignificant to him. There's nothing that Jesus does not want to hear. He knows it already, so why not talk to him about it? And give it to him. And also, you don't have to wait for your time to come up on the hour or on the 30 minutes or you get a 60-minute window with them and that's it. 
you get as much time as you want because there are no time constraints where he is. So time doesn't exist. Time is that physical property that only we're bound to right now, and he's in a place without it. And so you get the opportunity to go as long as you need to talk to him. So go boldly today and lay your papers before the Lord. That's one of my favorite songs that the Holy Spirit has written through, through Chris and Mason and Kelly here is papers before the Lord. I think, I think you guys shorten it to just papers. But it, it comes from Hezekiah. Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19. This was something that the Lord showed me back in 20, 2019 and something I was going through in my life with my wife and I, not between us, but my wife and I were in something. I, I, that came out wrong. <laughs> all, all of you are going to grab Randy afterwards. Boy, what was happening with you and Matt three years ago? No, Randy and I were in a situation that was, that was absolutely from the enemy, and this is what the Lord showed me to do. He took me to 2 Kings 19, and this principle and this is one of my favorite things to do of whatever you're facing in your life. So 2 Kings 19, to set the stage, Jerusalem, Hezekiah is king. He's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of Syria. And the general is basically telling them, give up. You're surrounded. You're blocked. We have you under siege. You're going to starve to death. You're going to die, whatever. <clears throat> so give up now. Well, he writes a letter, the Syrian general writes a letter and sends it to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah has this letter from, from the enemy that says all those things. Give up, our God is the real God, you're going to die, we're going to kill your women and children, you're going to starve to death, etc., etc., etc. And so this is what Hezekiah does. In 2 Kings 19, verse 14, and Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. <clears throat> and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. And see, what he's saying is, yes, all of these other nations that Assyria had conquered, they took their gods of who they worshipped, and they just threw them in the fire because they weren't gods. And that gave pride to the Assyrian general to think, well, our God that we serve is the real God because we're destroying all these other gods. But he hadn't come against God yet. And so that's why Hezekiah takes this letter and, he's, and you could just get the picture of him running like Hebrews 4.16, 
running boldly before the throne of grace and just laying these letters down and saying, Lord, I don't know what to do with this, but you do. And at that point, God took care of it. He took care of it, but it took the king, it took Hezekiah submitting that before him. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of things in your life probably that the Lord would love to take care of, but you haven't laid it down yet. You haven't submitted it fully, or you're still trying to take it at your own, your own strength and, and wrestle it down and just deal with it. The Lord took care of this by sending an angel and killing 183,000 soldiers in one night. It was miraculous. It was remarkable. It was unforgettable. It was proving who the real God was. And there's a lot of things in your life that you may be facing that God wants to prove to you who's the real God. And not that you don't know, but it's to deepen your walk. Because then you can look back and you can go, I remember in 2019 laying that down before the Lord and what he did as a result. Supernaturally, remarkably. And so... Take it to Jesus. He's the counselor. And you don't need anyone else. And he's so desperate to hear your plea and to act. And here's where that title comes from, Isaiah 9-6. For unto us a child is born. All of you see this on Christmas cards. And unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's not yet, but it will be. And the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible, the Counselor. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my this is Jesus speaking, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Okay, we're going to do something um, first. If you are watching this, if you're in this room and you have not been born again, Please, it's so simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. You get born again. Then you have the right access and privilege to come into the throne room and to lay your papers before the Lord. And so, do I have one more slide, Austin? Is it just the next? Okay, go to the next one. That's fine. Leave that up there. Okay, so we did this a few weeks ago. We had an altar call, and, and the Lord has really impressed on me over the last two weeks that we need to do that again and to provide paper and pens if anyone wants to write anything down. So it's spreading your papers before the Lord. If you want to sit in your chair and do it, that's great. If you want to come up here and kneel down, all the better. Uh, Mason and Kelly and, and Chris are going to sing that song from worship, uh, Come to the Altar. No? Okay, I'm sorry. We're no. What? We're going to worship. Just going to worship. All right, we're just going to worship. Perfect. And, and so as they sing, just come and lay it down before Jesus. If there's something in your life that you need to lay down, don't leave here today without having done it. And so there's, there's stacks of paper down here. There's pens. If you want to write something, if you want to go grab a sheet of paper and go back to your seat, if you want to do it privately with your spouse, whatever, the altar is open. And so, Lord, we just come before you right now. And God, we just thank you so much 
for the opportunity to study your word and to get to know you better. And so, Lord, I just pray that just like last time when we were talking about doing an altar call, and last time you so gently said as we were talking about who's going to meet the people down here, and you just said, I am. And Lord, that again is one of my favorite titles for you, Jesus. I am. So Jesus, just meet us here in this place. Be down here as the counselor. Just meet people. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.